Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Very Cold Lasagna Podcast, your filthy casual place for all those filthy casual takes on the world of sports. I am your host, Dylan Lasagna. This is episode number 147 of this icy yet spicy podcast. Today, we got a good show for you all because we're going back into the deepest and coldest depths of the freezer here on Very Cold Lasagna and grabbing that old icebox yet again for another retro review here on the podcast. And this isn't just not another retro review. No, it's a retro review commemorating the 25th anniversary of this certain event that took place on June 28th, 1998. And what is that event? Well, most of you remember it for this one particular wrestling match that took place and the one particular moment in that match that went viral eventually when the internet became even more uh, mainstream and transcendent. And we'll get there when we get there. But this event in particular that I'm talking about is none other than the WWE, or as they called it at the time, the WWF King of the Ring. The 1998 event, WWF King of the Ring. Most of you remember this event Notably for that one match alone and that one big moment that happened in that match. But I also remember that too. <laughs> that was my, one of my earliest um, moments, my earliest what the hell moments as a wrestling fan growing up. But in commemoration of this 25th anniversary for King of the Ring 1998, I decided to go back and rewatch the entire event, the entire pay per view card for this event. So that's what we're doing here in this episode, here in this retro review episode of Varicold Lasagna. Now, before we get into my retro review of King of the Ring 1998, so a little bit of housekeeping before we get started. So you can always follow me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at Varicold Lasagna. If you're listening on audio for my listeners out there, you always rate and review the show, whether you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, just leave a review, rate the show one to five stars. Um, it always helps me uh, give some feedback uh, and helps me find, find ways to improve the show. And if you're listening to this on YouTube or watching me on YouTube, like, comment, share, subscribe, all that good stuff on the YouTube side of things. We're making a lot of positive momentum. Um, not sure how legit it is, but nonetheless, it's good to see. And for all the feedback that is on the YouTube side as well, keep it coming. Keep it coming. And some announcements. We are starting NFL Season Preview Month just very soon this Saturday on July 1st. So in other words, NFL coverage is coming back to the to the podcast. So whether it's on the YouTube channel or on audio platforms, for all my NFL fans out there or even the non-NFL fans out there, NFL coverage you're getting it back here on Very Cold Lasagna for all my filthy casual fans out there. So we're going to be covering all 32 teams in the NFL in preparation for the 2023 NFL season that's starting in a little over two months. So, yeah, there's that. And then for all my wrestling fans out there, don't don't fret. Um, I'm not completely abandoning uh, wrestling coverage again like I did last year. Um, that just means that, as I mentioned in my last Raw Smackdown uh, video on my YouTube channel, I'm just going to put a little bit on a, of a hiatus, a little bit of a break uh, because of NFL season preview month. And I can't really find a place where I can like upload it without, you know, making it a total mess <laughs> on 
on my upload schedule for season preview month. But I did want to commit at least a money in the bank review, which is happening the same day as I literally start NFL season preview month. So NFL season preview month 2023 starts this Saturday. And then for my wrestling fans out there, you will get a money in the bank 2023 review. I will be watching that show as well. Um, I'm kind of excited for that show. Um, and I hope you are too. So that's uh, this coming Saturday. So yeah, those are your announcements. Uh, always share and follow the show um, for very cold lasagna. And keep the feedback coming, guys. Let's keep the show growing. Keep expanding the show. Do what you can. Let's get into the, sh- the topic of the day for the show. And that is, obviously, bringing back the old icebox and doing another retro review. And this one is commemorating the 25th anniversary of the WWF King of the Ring 1998 event. So... This took place June 28th, 1998, exactly on this day. Um, It took place in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the Civic Arena. Uh, I think Jim Ross called it the Ice ice Dome or whatever, the Igloo. Yeah, that's what he called it, the Igloo. Uh, It is now demolished, so it's no longer a thing in Pittsburgh. Uh, The King of the Ring tournament, uh, by this point, it was like a, it was like a, like an NC, like a, kind of like an NBA bracket. But for this King of the Ring tournament, it didn't really have like the luster it it had at the time because, well, at the time it didn't have a prize um, other than you know it being a crown, um, and it, you know it normally is supposed to elevate you know whoever whoever's going to be that next star for the WWE. It elevated people like Triple H, Austin, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Bret Hart. I mean, at the time, you know they weren't uh, for this event in particular. They didn't really heavily promote it as much. They had qualifying matches, and then they had the first round literally start on the Monday Night Raw prior to the pay-per-view. So, yeah, this event was called King of the Ring, but the one gripe I did have with this event is that they didn't really have their priorities straight with the actual theme of the pay-per-view. So, hence, they had the semifinals and the finals on the 12th annual King of the Ring tournament, on this show and speaking of which this, it didn't exactly have a prize at the time other than it being a crown and spoiler alert the winner didn't even get the crown it, like at all it, it was kind of weird how they had that so also featured on this show was the main event matchup between the wwf champion stone cold steve austin and challenger kane in, a, in the first ever first blood matchup so is basically a matchup where the the competitors had to make each other bleed. Like whoever bled first, like literally bleed on their forehead, was was gonna win the match and the WF title. And then of course you had the match, the match seen and heard around the world in that big moment. But we'll get there when we get there. So some interesting notes um, that I want to talk about before we get into the actual card itself. This show was sponsored by Super Soaker, and they were heavily promoting uh, that Super Soaker ad like prior, like weeks prior uh, to the show, especially with D-Generation X, that group with Triple H, Billy Gunn, um, Road Dogg, Jesse James, and X-Pac. Um, but in my opinion, like with an event like King of the Ring, and especially with all those matches on the card, kind of fell out of place, especially when you have, um, what is it called, the, the guillotine in your poster? <laughs> it just felt a little 
a little out of place in my opinion. Like, you know, Super Soaker with the water guns. A little out of place, don't you think? But anyway, I digress. <laughs> in regards to its official theme song, um, I, I initially thought, you know, when I first heard it, uh, I thought it was just like some generic music to replace like a copyright theme song. Like one of those cool theme songs that you heard during the Attitude Era, you know, when they had those really badass theme songs that they had at the time on the WWE Network, but it was replaced by a generic one on the, for the WWE Network version. But no, I'll have you guys listen to the sample um, from the actual theme, from the theme song that they had. So here you go. So this song titled Trash Talk is the actual theme song of the show. So shit, that was, uh, I didn't, I totally did not expect that. That, that was the actual theme song for that show. So I don't know. No disrespect for the simplicity at the time, but just like with the Super Soaker ad, it was just kind of weird. It just didn't fit the theme at all. I mean, sure, like the theme song is not everything and all that, but it just felt weird. It just didn't like fit. It's, it's like a minor thing, but it just did not fit. I'm sorry. It, I'm sorry. So we get to the actual show itself. Jim Ross, Jerry Lawler welcoming everyone to the WWF King of the Ring and you saw how everyone excited everyone was at that time compare that to now with WWE and AEW events now these kind of events really made you excited what all the crowd signs and all that like holy shit you it felt like you really wanted to be there and especially with that hell in a cell structure over there it was like oh shit spoiler alert <laughs> but oh well <laughs> we'll get there when we get there and explain why that was there but there you go so we get to the opening matchup of the show the headbangers mosh and thrasher and then the wwf light heavyweight champion taka mishinoku going up against kaien tai which had fuganaki man's Tio, and dick togo so a little bit of side notes for uh some of these competitors mosh and thrasher uh the headbangers it is basically a, a gimmick of being metalhead so in other words fans of heavy metal music and they wore skirts to the ring because you know they thought that real men wore skirts so that was basically their gimmick um for taka mishinoku uh he was the first ever wwf light heavyweight champion um he was one their po big popular mid carters at the time so you know he was a he's he was a pretty decent wrestler um and he was one of the like solid names in the mid card meanwhile for the heel trio Kayente, uh, Kayentai, sorry. Um, their group name was actually based on a naval institution and a paramilitary organization in Japan. So they were feuding with Mishinoku, uh, Takamishinoku over him being Americanized since joining the WWF back in, I think it was March 1998. So yeah, that was basically the whole emphasis of that feud. So this is actually a bonus match added earlier in the day. Um, yet, I gotta be honest. The opening, this opening match was actually um, not bad. It was actually pretty, pretty good, um, and the fans were actually into this. <laughs> they were actually excited uh, to see like the headbangers and Takamishinoku uh, in there, and they were actually booing um, the heels Kaientai. So that was actually a fun opening matchup, and they, it, it was clear that they, both teams had a lot of team chemistry with each other 
Um, clean double team and triple team moves were executed. Um, and like I said, people got really excited when Taka tagged in both of the headbangers and the referee was like, wait, wait, you tagged both of them in? Like, hey, you can't do that, man. And then things completely spiraled out of control and the good guys would win the matchup when uh, they hit a triple team move on Funaki and then Mishinuku hit a Mishinuku driver on on Funaki and yeah, the good guys won. So that was a fun opening matchup. Um, and what hopefully was going to be a good pay-per-view for tonight. So then out came out Sable. A lot of people knew Sable at the time. Like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. Yo, yeah, no, you know what? <laughs> so Sable came out to introduce Vince McMahon. Um, but before he spoke, Patterson decided to be a dumbass and make an ass out of himself by slapping Sable's ass. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry. Who would it? But. Uh, but you don't do it out there live in front of television. Uh, and of course, as expected, he gets slapped for it. And then we get to the actual business. Vince McMahon goes on to speak about the main event of the night, the first blood WWF title match, and how there would be disappointment by the fact that he, they, the fans wouldn't see Kane setting himself on fire and how Austin would lose the WWF championship. Just like how fans were disappointments to their parents and how they would blame them for their failures. Like, as much as we brag on Vince McMahon for, you know, ripping up scripts, changing the shows, and doing all this bad shit in, in real life or to the to the shows, like, you, you have to admit, like, there would be no Vince McMahon without, uh, without Hulk, there would, without the WWF. There would be no WWF without Vince McMahon or Hulk Hogan, all this shit. And this is kind of another case with that. Um, Vince's promos back then were very fitting of his character, yet he's right. His, it's kind of like life advice. This was like another one of those Vince McMahon promos that were like life advice. <laughs> so it's like shit. And this was another example. Of, yeah, like I said, there would be no uh, WWF. There would be actually no pro wrestling without Vince McMahon. So just saying. So anyway, we get to the next uh, matchup, which is actually one of the two King of the Ring semifinal tournament matchups. So we had Ken Shamrock going up against. Oh God. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Jeff. J A R R E T T. Jeff Double J. Jarrett. So before there was the Hall of WWJ, WWA Jarrett. Before there was TNA, and then before there was even the return of WCWJ, there was only one country singer, Double J, in the WWF in 1998. But even on its 25th anniversary, we have to rightfully, and rightfully so, <laughs> Meanwhile, Ken Shamrock, a former MMA superstar, uh, was looking to notch his first accomplishment since arriving in the WF in 1997. Uh, he arrived back uh, when he was the special guest enforcer for the Bret Hart and Stone Cold Steve Austin matchup at WrestleMania 13. And, you know, he's been having these uh, various feuds since then. But he was looking to accomplish something, and that was by winning the King of the Ring tournament. So for this matchup, I mean, it was mostly dominated by Ken Shamrock, even when Jeff Jarrett frequently targeted his ankle. 
Um, he hit a not so great Hurricanrana um, because Jarrett like nearly landed on his head before quickly making Double J rightfully tap out to the ankle lock. So get your freaking 10,000 not sold guitars out of here, Double J. So it was a fine matchup. I mean, short. I mean, that was pretty much all the attitude era matchups, which, you know, justifiably so. But you can clearly see that the most dangerous man um, was booked to win this match convincingly. So, I mean, again, not not a bad decision, but, you know, it was so-so. So, again, get the next uh, King of the Ring semifinal matchup with The Rock going up against a former MMA fighter and amateur wrestler in Dan Severin. So, a little bit of side notes on this matchup. The Rock was still the leader of the Nation of the Domination stable um, during his time in 1998, and he was also the Intercontinental Champion. But, despite still being a heel, uh, slowly and surely, despite all the, the Rocky Sucks chants as well, his popularity was increasing. And, obviously it was after this point, it would. Meanwhile, Dan Severin, like I said, former well-known MMA fighter and amateur wrestler, and... Actually, one of the pioneers of the early UFC days. And he decided to bring his skills into the WWF, including bringing the hurt onto Nation of Domination member D'Lo Brown in their King of the Ring qualifying matchup. And I think Mark Henry as well in the first round matchup. So when you get to this matchup, eh, it actually wasn't that great. Um, Severin's amateur wrestling background didn't mesh well with the Rocks, like trying to be a heel and all that. Led to a couple sloppy spots throughout the match, but you know, at least led to a good ending uh, for the finish. Um, you saw D'Lo Brown get his revenge on Severin with a chest plated uh, frog splash while the referee was distracted with the Godfather and Mark Henry as The Rock advanced to, Ken Sh to face Ken Shamrock in the King of the Ring finals later tonight. So, yeah, it wasn't exactly a great matchup, uh, but you know, the finish was, was all right. Um, because, you know, it led to D'Lo Brown getting some revenge on Severin. So, it was okay. So, then we get the weirdest match of the night. So, we had too much. Brian Christopher and Scott Taylor going up against Al Snow and Head. For those that you don't know, um, Al Snow had this character of an individual with the schizophrenic disorder using a mannequin head as a prop of uh, projection. So... He introduced this character back during his Extreme Championship Wrestling tenure, like a year prior to returning to the WWF. And yeah, that was pretty much uh, what led to this. So this was Al Snow's like first pay-per-view matchup since his return to the WWF a month prior. So um, this match also came about when Al Snow used various disguises and stealing Jerry the King Lawler's crown in an attempt to have a meeting with Vince McMahon. Um, I'm not sure what exactly it was for, but he wanted that meeting so badly. Um, so if Al Snow and Head could beat too much, Al would get his meeting that he wa desperately wanted. So uh, before the match even began, the odds would be stacked even further against Al Snow when it was revealed at the last moment, Jerry Lawler <laughs> was assigned as the special guest referee. So basically it became a total three-on-one handicap match for him. As if it was already bad enough for Al Snow. So the match had its funny moments here and there. Like Jerry Lawler checking the shoulders 
I think it was like Brian Christopher. See, if it was like totally down, he was just like, are they down? Are, are, like, are they completely down? And then he was slowly making the count for us. No. And then you also had heads hot tag. And the match was like weird, whatever. At the finish, though, it was actually creative. I like the finish because Jerry Lawler actually got out of the ring. Um, and Jim Ross was like, what, what are you doing here? <laughs> you should be in the ring. And he grabbed what ended up being a product called Head and Shoulders. Get it? And Scott Taylor attached it to Head, Al Snow's thing. And he pinned Head when Al Snow thought that he would get the win by pinning Brian Christopher for some reason. Because wasn't te Head technically the legal teammate in the match? So Al Snow never tagged him in, uh, tagged back in for, for Head. So Brian Christopher and uh, Scott Taylor of too much were too much for for al snow so yeah that was a weird matchup um probably a matchup that would get shot on by the iwc the internet wrestling community all those hardcore fans if it happened today but i mean some moments made me laugh <laughs> a lot of it uh not so much but I, i'll give credit for the finish though i'll definitely give credit for the finish so next up, we had X-Pac versus Owen Hart. This match came about when Owen Hart had cost X-Pac his King of the Ring uh, first round matchup a couple of days, uh, two weeks prior against his DX teammate, Triple H. Uh, X-Pac did return the favor in Hart's own King of the Ring matchup against Dan Severin. So that's why these two are facing each other. So I'll say that these two are pretty aggressive against each other. Um, both been hit through and pretty much just about every adjective that you want to use to describe um, this matchup. Um, it's probably not a matchup that I'm going to remember, but I'd say it's pretty pretty solid um, because it's like they really hate each other. Now, keep in mind that D-Generation X and the Nation of Domination were feuding with each other during the time, so it makes plenty of sense why X-Pac and Ohart were really hating on each other um, in storyline context, of course. So... The finish saw like some shenanigans, of course. So you saw X-Pac take a weird spill to the outside. Mark Henry came out and like completely crushed X-Pac like a bug with like a splash. And then China comes around to get into it with Mark Henry. And then here comes Vader for some reason out of nowhere, belly bumping Mark Henry like into oblivion. And then they fought into the back. And then while the re referee was trying to take care of... Uh, all the shenanigans. Owen Hart actually had the match won, uh, tapping out X-Pac to the sharpshooter. But, of course, like I said, the referee was trying to take care of all the shenanigans outside the ring. So, Owen Hart had no referee. So, China would take advantage of the distractions and hit Owen with the DDT before the referee got back in the ring and X-Pac rolled onto Owen to win the match. So, again, pretty... Pretty solid match. Um, hard hitting, like as if they really hate each other. Uh, the shenanigans were also uh, <laughs> interesting to say the least. And yeah, pretty, pretty solid match up there. So after that, we get a Paul Bear promo. He came out to talk about how he would be the father and manager of their new WWF champion, Kane. A pretty basic promo from him. So yeah, nothing much else to say. So then we get a... Second of two bonus matches that was added earlier in the day. 
and that was the WWF Tag Team Champions, the New Age Outlaws, Billy Gunn and Road Dog taking on the Midnight Express. Bodacious Bart and Bombastic Bob, accompanied by one Jim Cornette. For the Midnight Express, a little bit of a side note, um, they were actually one of many, uh, like I don't, I'm not sure what you say, like one of many like tandems or lineages in that long history since 1980. Um, but this one only lasted a couple of months, according to Jim Cornette, and. He, it, he considers it non-canon so like it doesn't really exist in their history um they also possessed the nwa world tag team titles but it, only the wwf titles were on the line so it was a solid tag team matchup um and honestly it served as a reminder that you don't need to have a million spots in whether it's a tag team matchup or a regular singles matchup just good double team moves that go with the flow in the ring. My one pet peeve with this matchup, though, was Jim Ross and Jerry DeCane Lawler just constantly talking about the cell mat the cell matchup that was going to take place um, later on in the night for like more than half of the match. <laughs> more than half of this match. I mean, again, it's a bonus match. Like you don't really have much else to say, but it's like kind of focus on what's going on in the ring. Um, yeah, like briefly mention um, like the big main event matches that are going to happen, but it's like. Try to say something about this. Um, That's kind of like my big pet peeve with this um, bonus match. So Jim Cornette did get involved towards the end by hitting Billy Gunn with the NWA tag team title with the referee distracted. He managed to kick out. Uh, the second time he tried to do it, um, he didn't notice China behind him. And he got low blowed for his troubles. So the Outlaws would hit Bombastic Bob throwing him up onto the top rope. That would knock him out for some reason. Yeah, those you had those kind of finishes. And yeah, that would get the three count and the New Age Outlaws retain their title. That was kind of a, I gotta be honest, that was kind of a weird and also kind of lame finish uh, to what was a decent tag team matchup. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, okay, it's it was kind of like one of those finishes at the time, but yeah, I, I wasn't feeling that finish. Um, just literally throwing him up onto the top rope maybe like whiplash and knocked him out i don't know but either way not exactly the not exactly a fan of that that finish right there so anyway new age outlaws retained the tag team titles but decent match just didn't like the finish so next up you had ken shamrock going up against the rock in the 1998 king of the ring finals european champion triple h and china once again came back out for the third time that night and like Really felt like minutes. Uh, they were on commentary. And <laughs> funny thing, uh, China actually ended up joining the Spanish commentary team a little later on and actually, uh, you know, spoke some Spanish. So that was pretty cool. Um, to further heighten the uh, to further heighten the feud between DX and the Nation of Domination, The Rock would talk trash to Triple H, and Triple H spat some water in his face, and The Rock would pie face him back. So it's kind of funny how Triple H was pissed by like uh, the Rock, uh, like pie facing him back, uh, pie facing him back in retaliation when Triple H was clearly the one that spat water in his face first. So it's like funny how he was like pissed off when he was clearly being the instigator in that. So anyway, um, the match was okay. Uh, the match was actually like pretty slow to start, um, thanks to the Rock playing some uh, playing up as a heel, playing doing some trash talk. 
but it really picked up. Um, and then they went on to have a pretty good wrestling match. I'd say one of the best moments of that match was Shamrock kicking out of the people's elbow at the very, very minuscule second, like the last moment. It was like one, two, and then when the referee was about to hit the mat, boom, Ken Shamrock kicked out. So then after that, you had some back and forth near falls, and then finally, you had Shamrock trap and tap the rock to an ankle lock to become the 1998 King of the Ring. So again, pretty good wrestling match. Like, when it's like under, like, this was actually not a long match too. It was like under, like, 15 minutes or less. But when you have things like simple down, um, it, it's, it actually ended up being a pretty good uh, matchup. And this actually one of those, like, I, I don't say underrated, but it's like ones that don't really look as much. Unfortunately for Ken Shamrock, though, um, it didn't really amount to much because he wanted to have nothing feuds again in the mid card. And then a year later, he went on to resume his MMA career. So unfortunate, a little unfortunate for Ken Shamrock. Now we get to the big main event matchups. And then now we first talk about the big matchup. The big matchup and why that structure is there. The Undertaker versus Mankind inside Hell in a Cell. Yes, the matchup that everyone talks about. The matchup that made this event famous. The matchup that pretty much makes one of the matchups that makes pro wrestling famous. So, I don't know. I could go on and on about uh, so many adjectives. With this matchup. But it's better to like try to explain like how we even got to this point uh, for people that don't even know about it. So that being said, let's talk about it. So a little bit of note pre-match notes, like a pretty match side notes with this one. So both Undertaker and Mankind, they previously feuded before when Mick Foley first came into the WF in April 1996. As Mankind, they had a couple of matchups um, at King of the Ring and SummerSlam and Survivor Series of that year. And then, yeah, after that, um, a couple years later, at this point, 1998, um, Foley feuded with Stone Cold Steve Austin after WrestleMania 14 for the WWF title as his other persona, Dude Love. Uh, Mick Foley reverted back to his Mankind one to resume his feud with The Undertaker. Reason being is that when Foley had his WF title match against Austin at the previous pay-per-view over the edge, Undertaker, he he quote-unquote costed Foley his uh, matchup uh, with Austin because Undertaker was technically the special guest enforcer and he wanted a fair matchup, which hurt the presence of Vince McMahon Stooges, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe, who were also assigned roles to that matchup. So Foley would later retaliate by costing The Undertaker his number one contenders matchup against Kane a week later on Raw. So they initially also fought two weeks prior in just the second ever Hell in a Cell matchup, which WWE doesn't really consider canon, um, in a tag team matchup also involving Steve Austin and Kane. But that ended, well, now no, that didn't end in no contest. Um, I went back and saw like there was like a dark segment Stone Cold Steve Austin and Undertaker did win that match. So that is not canon anymore. 
<laughs> not, I can't hit anymore. So <laughs> they did win the second ever Hell in a Cell matchup. So that's pointing out there. So anyway, that led to this third Hell in a Cell matchup. And yeah, here we go. Um, the Cell starts to lower down after the King of the Ring finals between Shamrock and The Rock. And Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler are like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. It's, it's starting to lower, and they're getting all nervous as hell. And then out comes Mankind um, with, with, uh, like the dark, with the dark lighting. And then he decides to throw the chair up the cell. And then he climbs on top of, of the cell. And Undertaker was willing to meet him up there. And then you, like, you know it's going to get scary. You, like, you, you kind of felt scared for both of them. If you're watching this at the time, especially if you're there live in person, I was one years old at the time, <laughs> a wrestling fan. So, I, but I can imagine that you're probably scared for both of them. So the cell roof nearly gave way because they were over like what 600, 600, 700 pounds combined, but they were still hitting each other hard. And then, then after Undertaker hit a couple more hard hands. To stun mankind. We then get. Not just one of the biggest moments. In professional wrestling history. But I guess. All of history. A moment replayed however many times you can count. Undertaker threw mankind. Mick Foley. 15 feet. Off the cell roof. Through the Spanish announce table. And literally knocked him out. It was literally one of those early wrestling holy shit moments i had and when i began my fandom in 2006 yes keep in mind i was born in 97 and didn't get introduced to wrestling until 2006 but thankfully we had youtube we had the internet so <laughs> when i was a kid and wa watched this on youtube it was like fuck <laughs> this shit happened i missed this when i was, lit when I was like a year old <laughs> A two years old. <laughs> so Undertaker just even throwing mankind from that large of a height, 15 feet. That's no joke. And then JR's one of most one of his most iconic calls, if not the most iconic call of his career. Like, good God almighty, good God almighty, he killed him. First God is my witness, he is broken in half. That that was just unbelievable. It it, it was like they didn't know what like what was gonna happen like especially jim ross like i don't think he knew it was gonna happen there it's like fuck like it's like so surreal like when i first watched that so the match was stopped momentarily medical personnel came out to tend to foley and a little later they even raised the cell back up the undertaker was still on the cell so it is like they're, they showed a lot of concern for Foley, and, you know, rightfully so. He just literally just fell. He, he literally just got thrown 15 feet off the cell. But Mankind, Mick Foley, didn't want to go out that way. His wrecked body defied the medics. He went straight back up the cell to fight The Undertaker like a madman. Only, but then what happened next? The next big moment. <laughs> So Mankind had already flown 15 feet off the roof of the cell. And then now you just had Mick Foley fly another 10 feet through 
the roof of the cell. If you want to talk about a crazy son of a bitch, that's what's Mick Foley. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that was Mick Foley, who was willing to put his life, his body on the line for pretty much everybody. And respect, man. Respect. So we get to the rest of this match. Undertaker refused any more stoppages afterwards. He chokeslammed Terry Funk, Mick Foley's best friend, and he went on to beat down Mankind even more as the rest of the match progressed inside the cell. But then Undertaker missed a suicide dive. He was busted open. And then the already broken down Mick Foley uh, rally. He tried to rally, attempted to win this match with his best shot, but Undertaker kept kicking out. So desperate, Mankind brought out and spread out thumbtacks in the ring. I read that this was very, like, very rarely used in the WWF. This is like one of their first instances that they used thumbtacks. But whatever he had planned to use for that thumbtacks backfired. Undertaker dropped him into the tax twice. The second one being a choke slam, and finished off a iconic Hell in a Cell match with an emphatic Tombstone Pile Driver. Like, holy hell. Holy hell. This matchup. Now, I'll admit to you, I, I gotta say, this is the very first time I've watched this match in its entirety. Outside of the big two moments of this match. Like, I kid you not. Like, I really kid you not. I, <laughs> I Out of all the years I've been in wrestling fan, I think, what has it been? Like, 17 years now? Like, I have not watched this match in its entirety. Outside of its big moment, this two big moments. Like, the actual match itself, outside of it, it's it's still great. It is still great. Um, because, you know, the intensity of the rivalry that Mankind and Undertaker had. Um, I think, from what I read, though, uh, both Mankind and Undertaker did get injured during this match. Undertaker had an injured foot. Mankind had, like, multiple injuries, especially which was... Uh, um, intensified even further with all the bumps he took. So that clearly hampered what they could have done during the match. Uh, it limited of what they could have done. So I thought it could have been even greater, but obviously these, these things happen. But still, they were able to tell the story that they wanted to tell in an effective manner. And in my opinion, that's all that mattered in the end. So... The commentary was also masterful as well. And that's why I would say Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler are the best commentary duo in, in, in his, in, I don't know. I would, I wouldn't say all, all sports history, but professional wrestling history. They played up the absolute horror they witnessed all night long and the concern they had for both of them. And it was justified here with every hardcore spot and especially the big spots in this matchup. Especially Jim Ross, man. He was like, holy shit. <laughs> that was amazing. And then, I will admit, you know, the spots definitely could have gone wrong. Could have gone wrong. But Mick Foley, you know, he deserves his flowers. Willing to take those risks um, that he did. Just like he did during his uh, career up to that point. Was it dangerous? Was it unnecessary? A lot of people will say that. But it was a defining part of not just uh, Foley's persona and what he was willing to do. Um, but eventually, um, it led to his rise to a main eventer in the later part of 1998 and most of 1999. Maybe even the later part of his career as well. 
Hell, he was able to even walk out of the ring on his own power afterwards, despite taking so much abuse. It's like, like I said, he's a tough ass son of a bitch. Like, how? How? So the Undertaker also equally deserves praise of his own. I mean, I also read trying to do this uh, review. He was very concerned about this, but he he agreed. He with reluctance that uh, he was willing to do it with reluctance uh, that for Foley for Foley man. And then, like I said, he deserves praise for showing the ruthlessness and toughness for his character. Um, and yeah, his character would eventually take that ruthlessness and toughness for the better part of 1998 with this heel turn later on. And he also do whatever it takes to dismantle Foley. And, you know, he also took some risky, but not as risky, obviously, uh, spots throughout this match. So overall, you know, this match will obviously be remembered, um, for Foley getting thrown off the cell and, you know, it'd be the overall highlight um, for what this pay-per-view would be. But it'll also be remembered as the Hell in a Cell match that not just heightened uh, both men's careers, but also the WWF even further into popularity as they were still in that uh, war with WCW. But this match just heightened, uh, heightened themselves even further. Like, holy heck. But then you also forget there's still one more match to go. And that was the WF title match between Stone Cold Steve Austin, the champion, going up against Undertaker's brother, or at least, you know, on screen, Kane in a first blood match. The first ever first blood match in the WWF. Some side notes uh, going into this matchup. Stone Cold Steve Austin was still feuding with Mr. McMahon. You know, the top story in the WWF at the time during the Attitude Era. McMahon was growing desperate after the previous pay-per-view over the edge to get the title off of Austin who had held it since WrestleMania 14, which jump-started the attitude era or, or at least kicked it off into full effect. As mentioned, Kane won a number one contenders match against the undertaker to face Austin at King of the ring. But just six days before Kane raised the stakes, a first blood match, the first ever one. Um, and he would set himself on fire if he lost. And like I said, just moments ago, First ever first blood match in the WF. But I also saw kind of interesting when I went back and saw the video package for this because how in the world was Stone Cold Steve Austin going to make Kane bleed when Kane is literally wearing a red leather mask? Kind of interesting to note that. So maybe it was <laughs> make Austin's job even harder. I don't know. That's kind of interesting. So for this match itself, it was it was pretty good. Pretty good as expected. Um, Austin wasted no time going after Kane and trying to make him bleed, which literally was so hard to do. Uh, like I said, Kane literally had a red mask on, but just minutes into the match, the Hell in a Cell structure suddenly lowered and nearly came back down and nearly <laughs> killed Steve Austin. Um, and Kane literally tried to murder Austin when the Kane uh, in the cell nearly got lowered uh, deeper. So it puts Steve Austin at an even bigger disadvantage you know, solid steel all around him. And every time he got his face thrown into it. Um, so not good if you're Steve Austin with your bald head exposed. So the cell did get raised slightly back up. Um, but both men were now brawling all over the entrance era. Vince McMahon was watching in the skybox in the arena. 
Uh, and then Austin, you know, he was trying everything he could to bust Kane open. But like I said, the biggest disadvantage for um, Austin was Kane's biggest advantage, the mask. So later on, referee Earl Hebner was accidentally knocked out after Kane had whipped Austin into him. And, you know, shenanigans would ensue. But yet people will complain about Roman shenanigans, but not here. <laughs> Moments later, uh, Mankind somehow able to run despite taking a brutal ass beating from the much the match prior. He tried to interfere, but received a stone cold stunner right away. And so did Kane as the sail was lowered yet again. So the Undertaker then came out limping uh, with the chair, too. And both Austin and Undertaker tried a concerto on Mankind, but they failed because uh, Undertaker accidentally struck Austin and his Mankind ducked from it. So, you know what that led to? Austin bleeding. And eventually, as you know, Earl Hebner was revived by the Undertaker with the gasoline tank, um, despite Austin's attempts, last attempts to, you know, cover up his blood and try to make Kane bleed, Earl Hebner eventually called the match in favor of Kane. So Kane is the new WWF champion as Vince grinned evilly with an evil grin in the skybox as the show suddenly came to a close. I was like, damn, you rushed to the to the ending. Like, okay. That was kind of weird. So the match was good. Um, it was a desperation fight to see who would make the other man bleed first. Nice to see the other two stories with um, uh, Undertaker and Mankind interwine uh, because that's what they had been doing uh, the past couple of weeks going into that event. Um, and it led to a screwy finish in favor of Kane. Um, it was just funny to see how a rebel like Austin was so confused on why he lost when it was clear as day. You like you got busted open in a first blood match. <laughs> it's like kind of like kind of odd for Austin's character at the time. It's like, wait, I lost. Like what the what? <laughs> it's like it lights on your face, dude. It's a first blood match. <laughs> Even in front of a half cautious Earl Hebner, the referee, it's like you knew you were gonna lose that match. But uh, all was right in the world for Steve Austin as the next night on Raw. Steve Austin would win back the WWF title and eventually feud with both Kane and the Undertaker for the rest of the rest of the year, at least most of that year. So overall, you know, with this pay-per-view, um, having watched the full show now, besides that one Hell in a Cell match with um, Undertaker, Mankind, and even then, I only watched that one moment before watching the full match in, with this show. I would still say it was a very solid pay-per-view, close to being a a good pay-per-view. I liked the opening six-man tag. It was a nice way to get the crowd going with the headbangers and Mishinoku and Kayentai. Uh, but then they start to dwindle a bit with the rest of the undercard. Like I was not really liking the that flow the flow of the show from there. Um, but then they start to really pick back up with a couple good matches with the tag team title match. Uh, I did like, I really liked the King of the Ring finals with The Rock and Ken Shamrock. Um, I think it's a matchup that doesn't get talked about as much. And, you know, some people will say it's justified, but I, I really liked it. And then obviously you had the two main event matchups that stole the show. Um, some people will still say that the show will be remembered by the Hell in a Cell match between Undertaker and Mankind. And, you know, justifiably so, because it became one of the most famous wrestling matches ever 
for the moment that Mick Foley got thrown off the cell. Um, and, you know, also, it's famous for not just wrestling fans, but to people who don't even watch wrestling in general. You show Mankind getting thrown off the cell to someone, and they'll instantly have the reaction of, what the fuck? Whether they saw it for the first time or the, the millionth time. But as for the entirety of the show itself, I'd say it was very solid. It was a very solid show. Um, I just wish that the the rest of the undercard was kind of flowed better. But overall, this pay-per-view, 25 years later, I'd say it's it's still a it, it would be a very solid watch uh, to go back and look at it. Uh, besides that one match, besides that Hell in a Cell match, it's a very solid watch. So yeah, if you want to go back and watch 1998 King of the Ring, I would recommend it. I would I would recommend it. Besides <laughs> the Hell in a Cell match. So yeah, if you're looking for something to watch um, that's not the Forbidden Door or, or the Forbidden Snore, I would watch. Yeah, the 1998 WF King of the Ring pay-per-view event. So, yeah, what did you guys think? Um, did you ever wa go back and watch, or did you even watch in general, the 1998 King of the Ring pay-per-view event? Uh, did you even see the big moment with uh, Mankind, Mick Foley, uh, and The Undertaker? Or maybe the, even the other matches on that card? What did you guys think about this event? Um, or this thing in general? I'd love to know your thoughts, whether it's on social media or in the comments below on YouTube. Yeah, let's have a discussion on the 1998 King of the Ring pay-per-view event in its 25th anniversary. So, yeah, I'd love to know your thoughts on this. So anyway, that's it for this 25th anniversary retro review of the WWF 1998 King of the Ring pay-per-view event. I hope you guys enjoyed this uh, retro review episode of Very Cold Lasagna, episode number 147 of this icy yet spicy podcast. I'm Dylan Lasagna, your host, signing out. And yeah, keep that lasagna very cold in the fridge with your takes on the world of sports. And until next time, peace out.